Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of our Natural Wine Club. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today the wine club is going to be entirely presented by my business partner, Mark Couillard. entirely incorrect. (laughs) Uh, Either way, he's here, and he's going to uh, contribute as much as he possibly can. We did have a guest lined up for this one, but unfortunately, because of... uh, timing constraints we've just not been able to make it work out necessarily um but hopefully we'll be able to have them on at a later date i'll try not to spoil too much uh either way we got a great wine club lined up today um three really wicked wines from all around the world uh like literally all around the world this time uh is about as, as as far flung as it gets i suppose um, but yeah, first up, maybe we'll start with, uh, sort of the, the most obscure place and, uh, and grape varieties. Uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about Strekov, uh, Strekov 1075. Um, I don't know, uh, Mark, you've, you've been there. Uh-huh. We have been there. Yep. Uh, and, and you have a very different experience of visiting there than everybody else. Cause you were the only one who was sober. So maybe you want to, uh, <laughs> introduce everybody to, to Strekov and give us maybe the, the rundown of, uh, what your impression was of strike off where it is those sort of important things yes i can i can certainly do that um i think in this wine club before we've probably covered jolt himself and some of the uh the wild ideas he has certainly uh that uh, the first time we tasted with him at raw and like just as we were tasting the first wines some of the stuff he's talking about like taking the wires out of his vineyard or like the metal out of his vineyard all these things um but uh um all of some of that stuff aside, his wines are just so lively and bright and fun that we, it was it was a uh, kind of an honor to go meet him. Now he's kind of like I don't want to say in the depths of Slovakia, but he's definitely uh, I don't know hour and a half across the border I think at um, least yeah. yeah. So uh, so we had an adventure getting there for sure. This was uh, on our trip where we had some some other folks with us, and I was driving the big van, which was an experience in itself. Um, but yeah, we show up there and. The address uh, in this little town of Strekov, which which honestly uh, maybe has about four streets in it, um, it looked like a supermarket, and uh, it was very confusing. And I think we drove up and down the block a few times, and the GPS was like, "No, this is this is where it is." Uh, and we eventually determined that the house was actually behind the supermarket type building, um, so it was kind of in an alley, like up the side, and that was that was kind of where he has this like almost villa of a house, not fancy in the, in that way, but almost like a ski chalet, uh, the way it's designed. Um, we were unfortunately a bit late because our previous meeting had run overboard, um, and so he had hoped that we could go out and taste in the vineyard. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, we couldn't do the whole tasting out there because it was getting kind of dark. But the fortunate side was that it was one of the most spectacular tastings I've ever done. Uh, I, you know, I wish I could transmit pictures through this microphone, but uh, we basically sat on a picnic table uh, on on the hillside or, or on the edge of the hill, uh, uh, overlooking this valley uh, where his vineyards are. And of course, his vineyards are all single staked for the aforementioned reasons of uh, not having any metal in his vineyards. Um, but one of the things I was most fascinated about, aside from this like kind of unreal setting uh, as we were drinking his wines, which again, are just so vibrant and exciting, was, was as we talked to him about these ideas that he has about you know the aura around his vineyards and the wines and, and some of the methods he does that sound totally crazy, he actually didn't sound crazy. He sounded very practical when he described them. And not only that, he came right out and said, I know these ideas sound crazy. I know I sound like a crazy old guy, but I'm like, when I made all these changes, the wines have tasted better than they ever have before. And maybe it's a placebo effect, but 
why would I change now? Um, and I think that's kind of what I was left with. Um, and then we proceeded to just, everyone had a, had a very good time. And I think we left at two in the morning and drove two and a half hours through Hungary to our Airbnb in Austria. So that was my experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's, uh, that, that's exactly what I remember. Although, uh, again, because I was not driving, I was, I was drinking, uh, perhaps excessively. I think that it was, it was very in line with the spirit of, uh, of the event, the spirit of Jolt, yep. essentially, where essentially after uh, four hours of us hanging out with Jolt, he's like, cool, time to drink. I'm like, well, what have we been doing so far? Oh, yeah. That uh, was when he brought out the schnapps, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's very much, you know, th- uh, this is what I remember is he's like, uh, like, oh, do you like beer? Like, yeah, we love beer. I make the world's best beer. Like, okay, we'd like to try that. He's like, uh, do you like schnapps? Like, yeah, we, we love schnapps. I make the world's best schnapps. Like, yeah, okay, cool. Let's let's try that next. Like, oh, do you like uh, you know pumpkin seed oil? Uh, I I don't know. I make the world's best pumpkin seed oil. Anyways, most of the people on the trip walked away with uh, some of Strekov's uh, world famous pumpkin seed oil for their uh, for their salads once they get back to uh, back to Canada. Um, anyways, kind of giving a rundown of Slovakia as far as a region goes. It's a continental climate, um, so a climate that is not particularly affected by the oceans nor by large bodies of water. Um, it's also not a Mediterranean climate in the sense that if you look at some of the more southern regions uh, of um, of Europe in general and, and the world at large, uh you're not seeing warm weather year round here. You very much have pronounced summers that get quite hot, very cold winters. Um, it's, uh, it's essentially a lot what we have here in, uh, in Alberta. Um, but you know, on that sort of, uh, European scale where it doesn't get quite as cold in the winter, the joys of the, uh, the Gulf stream, essentially. Um, if we look back historically at Slovakia, the reason why a lot of you are probably unfamiliar with Slovakian wines is the joys of communism. Uh, it's, it seems to be the common thread across a lot of the countries that we, uh, you know, perceived as being really up and coming from a wine perspective. Uh, a lot of them are essentially recovering from this idea of collective agriculture, the idea that essentially every single, uh, you know, grape grower in the entire country had to ship all of their grapes um, to one central place where all the wine was made. Essentially, the state made one white, one red, maybe a rosé, maybe some bubbles, but essentially the idea was that it wasn't about individual glory, it was about, uh, you know, making sort of one universal wine. And so generations sort of lost touch with land, lost lost touch with, uh, you know, the traditions of, of winemaking. And so now it's only been within the last, you know, especially the last 10 years or so that you're starting to see, uh, you know, really forward-thinking winemakers, um, you know, winemakers that have traveled, uh, tasted wines from around the world, have adapted both modern technologies, but have also gone back to the traditional ways of making wine in these regions. Uh, and so we're starting to see these wines uh, appear on our market. And for us, this is a really exciting place to be looking for wine, um, both because climatically it's totally different than everywhere else. Uh, the soils here are different than everywhere else, or at least the combination of, of soils, climate, uh, and, and history. Um, and then also a lot of really interesting grape varieties. Uh, in this case, we have Blauer Portugieser or, or Portugieser is, is, you know, for short, uh, what most people call it. Um, and this wine is called Bob. 
uh, Bob, one of the most adorable names that we've had for a wine ever. And it's named after the donkey that you see on the label. Uh, Jolt's uh, beloved donkey, you know, needed to, uh, to make an appearance here. Uh, he looks surprisingly similar to uh, a certain character from, uh, you know, maybe a big green guy should be next to him on the next label. Uh, either way, we're, we're making waffles for sure. Um, do you want to run us through like your, your tasting note? You've had this wine very recently, so I feel like maybe you can give somebody, uh, give everybody a little description of what they should expect in the bottle. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as the tasting note, it's more of like a, a feeling of this one for me, as opposed to maybe, uh, you know, I know you've got the write up probably with some more specific tasting notes. Um, for me, yeah, I, w- I was out, uh, a sampling with this, with some folks and, and some of the words that kept, kept reappearing, um, were just like Again, with those like fresh, vibrant, like punchy, uh, um, crunchy, you know, crunchy fruit, kind of that like, yeah. it kind of uh, finds this interesting mix between, um, I mean, you can see in the color, it looks almost like black in the photo. Um, so, uh, but typically wines that are, I don't know, I find that are 11.5% alcohol that are done in this Nouveau style tend to have like a lot of red fruit. And this was actually like a really striking balance between a bit of tart red fruit and some really like weirdly dense black fruit despite it being you know again a lively fresh wine um the the little bit of spritz um that's in there uh really keeps things lively um and and actually hangs at hangs around for for quite a while despite the fact that i was opening and and closing um but again really like livens up uh livens up the body um or sorry livens up the um sort of the, the attack more than anything. Um, but yeah, uh, and then kind of on the palate, it's a lot of the same. There's a little more like savory spiciness, um, which just seems to come from from any red grape grown <laughs> sort of in that region. Yeah, There's definitely. always this like peppery, spicy character. So, I mean, you've got these like really fresh, uh, like red and dark fruits. And then, um, and then, yeah, just like really kind of a peppery, spicy kick on the back end, but in a really pleasant way. Um, it, it is just, you know, I know we probably overuse the word crushable, but I mean, if you talk about a crushable red wine, I mean, that's yeah. it. You, you definitely serve this a little bit chilled. Um, and with that 11 and percent alcohol, you can just pop it and go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, what about from like a tannic perspective? What, what was uh, your impression on tannins? Was it like the no tannin or mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, little, little hint of tannin? No, there's hint of tannin for sure. I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, kind of integrated with that peppery, character so you don't get it as that like super woody super astringent tannin mm-hmm. um it's i mean again it, he made it in the nouveau style so it's yeah. it's uh you know lower extraction although when you look at the color it's hard to believe that but <laughs> um it's just portuguese or uh no it's it's uh it's very much that like super quaffable red but i think with with that sort of savory side to it and and i mean there definitely is some tannin in there uh really good food style wine Mm. Um, because again it's so bright and fresh um, that you can pair it with like lighter dishes but it's it's not going to just fade totally Mm -hmm. no I absolutely agree Uh, yeah Strekov we wait for our allocation every year uh, with bated breath last year uh, we were heartbroken to find out that we did not receive an allocation so it's actually been two years since we've had these wines in Alberta and we've never gotten an allocation of Bob. So this one's super special because, again, we, we after visiting him uh, and also meeting him once in L.A., yeah, yeah uh, you know, we just fell in love with these wines. And so for his production to mm. be so small that we can't necessarily receive them every year, despite 
you know, our intimate knowledge, uh, you know, of his wines and, and again, that connection that we have with him, uh, you know, it really goes to show how small production these are, how sought after they are and what a special thing it is to get to drink them, you know, during the short time of year when they actually are available. If you do end up loving this wine, uh, we have a handful of other wines from them available, um, including, uh, a couple new ones that have never been here before, uh, a Chardonnay called Richard or Richard, uh, you know, so it's, it's all about the puns when it comes to wines. Um, we have uh, a skin fermented Welsh Riesling from them, actually two different skin fermented Welsh Rieslings, uh, including sort of their top end orange wine um, that is going to end up in the premium wine club. So if you're already a subscriber to this wine club, um, but want to, you know, get your hands on some of the more rare bottles, definitely sign up for that one while you can. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll be in next month or the month after that, but either way, you still got time to sign up. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to have a bunch of different wines from them at the moment. They always seem to vanish quickly. So if you are excited about them, you know, jump on them now while you can. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully you can hear the thunder in the background. It's quite <laughs> yeah. beautiful. I can see you, uh, um, you're pairing note the beat pastrami. Yeah. I'm like, that is bang on. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. get better than that. <laughs> yeah. I talked mostly about fruit and sort of the savory side, but I didn't really mention that. Like, <clears throat> yeah, that sort of like beet, like vegetable sort of yeah. know, rudy character. It's definitely in there. Totally. So yeah, I, I really felt inspired on that particular pairing. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So next up we have, uh, Laurent Cazotte. Um, Laurent Cazotte has quickly become one of our favorite winemakers. Um, he's a winemaker that I've known about for the last six or seven years, maybe even longer than that, but probably somewhere around six to seven years, um, through, uh, mostly through wine bars in Montreal, as well as in New York. Um, if you look at any back bar in those places, like you look at places like Diner, for instance, or you look at places like um, uh, Vin Papillon or uh, Vin Lapin or, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of all the other ones, um, uh, Four Horsemen, uh, you know, all of these really, really famous natural wine bars, if you're looking at what spirits they have, they're basically carrying Laurent Cazotte because he's most known for his spirits. Uh, so for his eau de vies, um, as well as for making some really delicious liqueurs. Um, what makes his farming particularly interesting is he is a permaculture on a level that we've never really seen before. We're talking about hundreds of species of different things that he's intentionally growing on his property. This is everything from fruit trees. Uh, you know, he has, uh, like 32 different species of apples. Uh, he grows pears, he grows plums, um, grows really amazing cherries. Um, but then he's also growing a handful of other things, including growing, uh, flowers and different herbs that he actually uses as, uh, like insect repellents for the vineyard or um, sort of like anti-inflammatory properties for the vines or whatever it happens to be. He's, he's literally doing all of that. And because he's a, he's a distiller, he makes his own distillates of these things that he then dilutes and uses on his vineyard. So he, he's literally making his own, uh, you know, organic pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, et cetera, et cetera, from things that are growing between the vines, um, as well as things that are actually cultivated in sort of his, you know, farm-like setting. Um, 
in addition to growing all these other things, he also grows uh, a handful of acres of indigenous grape varieties. So grape varieties that come from this particular region, which is called the Tarn. Uh, the Tarn is in south central France. Um, you know, I've been trying to figure out what the nearest reputable town is. Uh, I think it's kind of close to Marseille. Toulouse. Uh, Toulouse. Yeah, yeah there you go. An hour and a half north. Yeah. Of, uh, northeast of Toulouse. Totally. There you go. Finally, we figured out, we figured <laughs> out a landmark that people might actually know. Um, anyway, so he, he's located there in uh, La Citani. Um, so it's a completely different world than what we'd see in, in the rest of France. You don't have you know, the, the sort of ubiquitous varieties that people aren't growing, you know, just Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon the same way that you'd see across most of the rest of, you know, especially Southern France. Um, you have a lot of these ancestral grape varieties. So things like in this case, uh, Duras and uh, Brocol, um, two grape varieties that are about as close to the wild as you can possibly get. Uh, there's all these stories about, you know, somebody going into the woods and finding these grape varieties. And essentially these are first generation descendants of, uh, yeah, wild grape varieties, which doesn't necessarily mean that their flavors are going to be any different. Um, but at the same time, I, I always get this sort of emotional reaction to these grape varieties where I do think of them as being quite rustic, um, quite untamed, uh, you know, quite of the natural world, uh, you know, for, for lack of a better descriptor. Um, this particular wine is, is some blend of those different grape varieties as well as Syrah. Uh, Syrah, pretty much traditional across the entirety of the, the southern part of France. Um, it, you know, it's always obviously going to contribute its own sort of level of spice to these wines, but I honestly think that Syrah is actually the docile one of these three grape varieties, which is really saying something. Uh, these grape varieties tend to yield wines that are, you know, black as night, uh, super tannic, really robust, full-bodied, but Laurent Sayard, or sorry, Laurent Cazotte, um, you know, this is the choice of having two different Laurents in the portfolio as I, you know, biff their names 50% of the time. Um, but Laurent Cazot, uh, you know, he's an international drinker. Uh, he likes drinking wines that are fresh, vibrant, you know, you know, infinitely quaffable. So he wanted to make a version of these grape varieties that would be a way more the way that we would see, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, but also something that's, you know, designed for the market now where it's like, we want to drink bottles of wine with lunch. We want to be able to have two bottles of wine over the course of, uh, you know, an evening between a couple couples. And it's, uh, so, you know, lower alcohol, less extraction, fresher, more vibrant style of these two, uh, kind of heftier grape varieties. Um, again, this is a wine that you were pouring this week, so I feel like you're, uh, you're more intimately familiar from a tasting note perspective, although I did go taste it at your place. Uh, <laughs> yeah, certainly this was, uh, I mean, I think all the wines I was pouring, um, were a hit, but this, this just as far as crowd pleasing, uh, you know, this was almost like that ultimate bistro wine. Like you talk about the bistro wines that they make in, in, uh, you know, the Loire Valley, for example, um, you know, that are those still like full of flavor, full of character, but lower alcohol. In fact, I'm trying to remember if this is the bottle because I'm looking at your uh, your note with the 12% that had the one label that said 12% and, and the, the other, other says label 12 says 12.5. Yeah. <laughs> and so not really sure. We just kind of say somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, but but the beauty is is a wine that somehow manages to balance freshness and uh like I would say it drinks like something like more in the 13 range, mm -hmm. uh, definitely in terms of the character. Um I mean, I'm a, a self-proclaimed Syrah lover, uh, certainly. So anything that's going to have that like spicy, peppery 
uh, savory side to it, along with some like, you know, really ripe but pleasant fruit uh, I'm going to be in love with. And so when you take Syrah and then you take uh, um, these other two grape varieties and kind of put them all together, it doubles down. Um, and it's funny because I, I use the word feral a lot too. And I think uh, it's kind of like funky in the wine world. It's a dangerous word to use because most people associate feral with like feral cats. And they're like, <laughs> oh, why would I want a wine that's like that? Um, so when you use the word like rustic, I think it, it kind of sends the same message. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't think of feral in terms of that. I think I, when I think of feral, it's, it's basically what you have, you know, sort of written down here. It's more of those like foresty, like earthy side to it, like some pepperiness some pine, some of that leather, um, you know, things like that. That's what I think of. And, and I love that in a wine is again, as long as it's balanced out nicely. Um, uh, I think the, uh, the structure on this, um, like really solid acid, but nothing overpowering, um, good tannic bite, uh, but not in, in an unpleasant way, in a way that allows you to, again, crush a bottle of this uh, just on its own with some friends, or, um, you know, wicked as a food wine. Um, and again, with those, uh, you know, similar to your pairings, like those those more like uh, gamey style meats, um, which I, I love with Syrah, like lamb, and venison, things like that, uh, I think go with this perfectly. Because again, it's, it's kind of like you've taken Syrah and just doubled down on it a few times, but without that intensity, it's it's much more light on its feet than that. Um, but yeah, like I said, everyone, everyone was blown away by this wine, uh, you know, especially at that price point. For, for someone like Laurent Cazat, who, you know, I was kind of laughing as you were describing uh, um, how you knew about him and how you had, and I remember when, when we first talked about bringing him in and it was really all about the eau de vies. Like we were talking like, you know, you'd had his wine before and it was tasty, but we were talking about the eau de vies and it was essentially just came down to, we couldn't order an entire <laughs> palette of, uh, of spirits if we were going to continue as a business. So um so we, we grabbed some of his wines, um, and I remember this one in particular came in and, and sold out almost immediately, uh, and we were like, oh, that's all good, and then we tasted a bottle, and we were just like, damn it, I wish we had more of this, yeah, because <laughs> um, this is so delicious, and everyone is going to love it, uh, and so this time we made the right move to order uh, a bunch more. Yeah. A little more reasonable amount. A little more reasonable time. amount, but I, yeah. I definitely see this as one of those wines. I mean, I, I don't know what his production is on it, but they, you know, I think every time we order from him, we have to ask if it's available because it's, yeah. it's uh, um, you know, I can definitely see it being a staple depending on how available it is. Yeah. Well, this is the problem is that I think he only has like eight hectares. Of yeah. Bottles. I didn't think, I, I didn't think he makes a lot, but yeah. again, because we can only have so much eau de vie in the, you know, or spirits or liqueurs in the portfolio at a time, it's not like we're ordering every month. So I totally. think like we'll be able to, to hopefully keep a relatively steady flow of this stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, on that note, if you are excited about spirits, so if you, if you drink mm, yeah. brandy, uh, you know, in particular, if you like the styles of like cognac, Armagnac, um, you know, Fin de Champagne, uh, Marc de Bourgogne, things like that, uh, you know, French style spirits, or if you're really a big fan of things like uh, classically styled schnapps, um, basically like you need to try the ones from Laurent Cazot. Uh, they're honestly the most characterful that I've ever tasted. Um, again, there's this rusticness to them that I feel like is lost in, uh, in a lot of spirits where they're, they're essentially going for like a sterile style. Um, which is less exciting to me. For me, it's like it's it's the style of his wines that I really want translated through these spirits. And so for me, his spirits are uh, like 
they're rich, they're powerful, they're fiery. Um, they have this sort of emotional quality to them that I don't really get off of other spirits. Uh, it's the same thing that we talk about with wine all the time, where like if it's all just fruit, it's kind of boring. Uh, you need a little bit of dissonance. And I think it's the same thing with spirits and in particular eau de vie. Um, and that's not to say, you know, I've had bad eau de vies before that, you know, taste like gasoline. Like that's not the imperfections that we're going for here. Here, it's just, we're going for complexity. The goal is not just to capture the flavor of, you know, in, in our case, we have a handful of different ones. We have plums, we have pears, we have apples, and then we have a, a Marc de Champagne or a eau de vie de Champagne. So, um, a distillate made from, uh, grape skins, uh, from Champagne, from, uh, from Chardonnay, from Jacques Lesang, uh, really amazing producer. So the, the goal isn't just to represent, you know, the purity of just pear. Uh, there's a lot more complexity going on here. There's always a savory element to it, um, an earthiness, but without being like kind of dirt driven. I don't know. It's, you're just going to have to try them, frankly. <laughs> They're just unbelievably soulful spirits. So as much as I'm, you know, obviously very keen on the wines, I, I obviously think that you should also try the spirits if, uh, if that's your game. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we, we met Laurent, uh, fairly recently in real life for the first time. Uh, we've been communicating via email during the entirety of COVID. Uh, and I've been a huge fan for the last, again, six, seven years. Um, but we finally got to meet him. What was your impression of, of him as a person? Uh, uh, just very thoughtful, very well-spoken, um, kind of jovial, like very funny. Mm. Uh, um, and uh, obviously pretty excited about his products. I mean, he it looked like he pretty much brought every single product he makes, which is many. Yeah. And, uh, and again, these are not, you know, cheap products in some cases, but he, he was pretty happy to have them open. And uh, I mean, we were standing there and we were not trying to get away, but we were like, okay, like let's, let's leave some space for other people to go. And he kept being like, Oh no, no, you got to try this one. Oh no, you got to try this one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just uh, um, yeah. Very thoughtful, very kind, maybe a little aloof, uh, which is kind of funny. Totally. Um, but yeah. uh, uh, you know, I'd say like caught up kind of in his, in his own world, not in a selfish way, just like, I think he's just got so much going on in his head all the time. But uh, I'd love to see him sort of in his element, like at at his farms or um, yeah, absolutely. in his fields. Uh, I think it would be super fascinating. So, I mean, that'll definitely be on the travel list. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, cool. Well, 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 before we get too far away from, uh, you know, our last wine here, we'll, we'll dig into it. Uh, Brock Sellers Love Rosé. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can t talk a little bit about uh, about Brock's Love Rosé because I feel like uh, you and I both get equivalently excited <laughs> when this wine comes out every year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially because I also poured this this week. So, uh, in fact, the entire wine club was uh, was part of my pouring session this week. Wow. Um, how convenient. I know. How convenient. Um, it's. Uh, I always think it's really cool when we can use... Uh, especially one of the love wines, like anytime we can use a Brock Sellers wine in wine club, but uh, in particular the love wines, because again, we, you know, try and keep up the variety and you don't want to use the producers too much. And I mean, the love wines are so recognizable that I mean, it's almost like even if you spaced it out over four years, people would still be like, wait, hasn't this been in wine club before? Um, but the thing about the, the love wines is, is certainly the style they're going for stays consistent. Um, but with the, their philosophy behind, uh, um, you know, which vineyards they're, they're working with and which grapes they'd like to use. And also just with what's happened in California uh, over the last while, whether it's just temperature, con or temperature like weather conditions, um, which affects 
you know, how much they get of each different grape that they're working with, um, or whether it's the fires, uh, or whether it's, you know, it's all these sorts of things. Um, because again, they, they're working with organic farmers, they're, they're buying their grapes. Um, and so, uh, but they're, I mean, I always tell this to people, uh, they're, they're dear to my heart because they're going out and trying to save vineyards of, of grapes long grown in California and, and in often cases in, in large quantities, um, but usually used as blending grapes um, uh, or in sparkling or things like that. You know, things you don't see on the label like Valdigue and Cunois and Trousseau and, and, you know, they don't even make a Pinot Noir or a, a Cabernet and they make like a very small amount of a high-end Chardonnay. Um, I mean, who does that in California? I mean, I guess you're starting to see a lot of producers uh, sort of of this vein. Um, they're starting to do some really cool things, but Brock's been with us from the start, um, so it's hard not to consider them one of our, uh, again, use the word staple, but also just like important to us because they've, they've helped us grow our business as they've grown. Um, so, I mean, super excited to get down and visit them because somehow <laughs> we haven't actually been to California, at least not to uh, uh, visit producers. But um, as far as this particular wine, uh, you know, I think we get really excited about it because we, you know, as with a lot of our wines, we do get a palette of this, which is, you know, a fair bit. Um, but it comes in, you know, springtime every year and uh, it doesn't take too long before we, um, before we get through it. Um, every year the blend is a little different. Um, like I said, generally speaking, because of uh, which grapes they're able to do and what condition the grapes are in and what style they're going for. Uh, this, of course, is, is almost all Valdigue, um, which is super cool. It just, again, finds this balance between being like super characterful, you know, again, at only 11.5%, like really fruity, but not overly sweet fruited, just like really fresh, vibrant fruit. And then there's always this amazing minerality um, that I get with this wine. Uh, which I think you want on rosé, but often I think you you sort of sacrifice some of the riper fruit flavor for sort of austerity. Um, you know, especially if you look at some of the the really like toned down Provence rosés. Uh, I think it's no secret in our wine club or or in our portfolio that we love rosés that are a little like I said, have a little more to them, a little more character. In some cases, are almost like light reds. Um, but, uh, but yeah, every year this comes in and even if the grape, uh, percentages of grapes change, the character is pretty much always the same and, uh, uh, people always just go crazy for it. Yeah. It's, uh, honestly, I'm always, <laughs> I guess not surprised necessarily, but I'm always, you know, pleased by how quickly this vanishes from our, uh, from our inventory. Uh, <laughs> you know, it always helps us having a wine that everybody is as excited about as we are. Sometimes we get really excited about things, but it takes a little more effort for us to uh, convince other people to be as excited as we are. And uh, this is definitely not one of those cases. This is like the second that anybody even sees the color, they're like, yes, I need that in my glass immediately. Um, to give you a little background just on, you know, I, I don't think we've had a rosé in the club in a little while now. So to give you an idea on how this wine is made um, and how that's different from making white wine or red wine, um, you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that process. Uh, so in order to make a red wine, you have to take red grapes um, and then you have to crush those grapes and allow the grape juice to macerate with the grape skins. The grape juice itself is actually clear. Uh, it's the same color as the inside of a white grape. And so the color of an actual red wine comes from maceration with these grape skins. Um, the longer you macerate, the more of that color you're going to extract.
extract up into a certain point. After you know a week or two, you've sort of extracted as much color as you possibly can. Um, not only that, but you're starting off with cold grape juice that's macerating with the skins. That's going to extract less of the color than at the you know in the middle of fermentation when you're getting up to higher levels of alcohol and a little bit warmer as the fermentation happens. Basically, as the yeast eat the sugar, they create a lot of heat. Uh, they kind of warm up because they're doing a lot of activity, eating all that sugar and converting it into delicious, delicious alcohol. Uh, so, you know, that combination of heat and alcohol are going to start extracting more from the skins during the fermentation process rather than at the start when the grapes are just crushed. Um, so if you want to make a really light red wine, you know, you would basically take the juice away from the skins after three, four days. If you want to make sort of a medium weight wine, uh, you know, you're doing it after maybe somewhere between a week and two weeks. And if you want to make something that's really extracting everything it possibly can from the skins, um, you know, we're talking about bringing in a producer who for their red wines, they do a six month maceration. Uh, after those six months, imagine, you know, soaking grape skins in, in, you know, a highly acidic, highly alcoholic uh, environment over the course of six months, you're going to have a lot of breakdown of those skins, you're going to extract a ton of color, and then a lot of the flavor components that are in the actual skins. Uh, with a rosé, you're basically catching it at the very first, you know, moments of, uh, of that wine becoming a red wine. So you're taking red grapes, and you're either pressing them, uh, and just taking the juice, which again, is going to be essentially white, maybe pick up a little bit of color as it trickles over the grape skins uh, as you're trying to extract that juice, or you're doing uh, what Brock is doing in this case, which is a very short maceration time, only about 12 hours. Um, they're crushing these grapes by foot, which is the most delicate way that you can possibly do this, um, and then they're allowing that to macerate. But again, you haven't really started fermentation yet. You basically have you know, cold grape juice macerating with the grape skins. So you're not extracting quite as much as you would during fermentation once, again, it gets A, warmer, and B, more alcoholic. Um, and so that's essentially how you're making rosé. For white wine, again, you're just directly pressing those grapes and fermenting just juice. You're not doing any skin contact, no maceration, uh, and that's sort of the sort of, I guess, the difference between those three styles. Um, Again, if they had left this for 24 hours, I think it would still be considered a rosé. It would just be a little bit darker. 36 hours, again, now you're starting to approach that light red territory. And after sort of two to three days, uh, you know, that's really where we start getting into the lighter end of the red spectrum. This is the nice thing about wine, though, is that there's no, you know, like actual lines between what is rosé and what is red wine. Uh, that's sort of the fun, and that's kind of the, the categories that we like to play around in more often than not is these sort of fringe categories and where the lines get a little bit more blurred. We're just looking for delicious flavors. We don't care at all whether it fits into a, you know, a certain category necessarily. Um, I guess diving back to the, this actual wine itself, uh, you know, this wine is made primarily from Valdegue, uh, a great variety that we're really excited about. It's often referred to as Napa Gamay because back in the day when it first got uh, imported into uh, the United States, they weren't sure what it was. Uh, I guess the documentation had gotten lost at some point. They're like, we have this grapevine. We don't know what it is. And there were you know, apparently no ampelographers available to figure out what it was. And so essentially got planted, uh, ended up in Napa, tasted like Gamay. They're like, cool, it's Napa Gamay. 
Great. Awesome. We'll call it that. And legally speaking, in California, up until this day, it is actually still legally called Napagame, even though almost everybody calls it Valdegay, which is a colloquial term. It's not even actually the name of the grape variety either, but it is what it is referred to as uh, in California. Um, I'm trying to remember what this actual grape variety is called. Uh, grow... Or is it Groman Sang? Uh, no, it's not Gromansang because that, that's a that's a white. I'm trying to think. Oh, of, right. Uh, yeah, what am I talking? Um, yeah, it's you're close. Oh, though. damn. Yeah, it's, it's a grow something. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, yeah, it's some like super obscure variety that is coming from southern France, kind of right on the border of Spain. Um, but honestly, it's not even really planted there anymore. So the likelihood of you running into it are is so. <laughs> you're just not going to. Uh, so anyways, it's a super obscure grape variety, um, but it used to be one of the most planted grape varieties in California because it makes these bright, fresh, juicy wines. It's really good at taming the tannin uh, on other grape varieties if you're using them in a blend, which again, if you look back historically at California, everything was blends. The idea of California Cabernet Sauvignon all on its own is very rare. Girl ox or what? Grow Oxerwa. There you go. Everything's called Oxerwa. Everything's called to grow something. <laughs> Anyways, grow Oxerwa. If you ever see one, let me know. I have absolutely never seen one, and I've literally tasted tens of thousands of wines. Uh, hopefully one day I'll get lucky enough to try one. Um, so anyways, but unfortunately, you know, during the 80s uh, and especially during the 90s and early 2000s when all the rage became, you know, this sort of nuclear arms race of, of winemaking where they're trying to make higher and higher alcohol wines, sweeter and sweeter red wines, uh, oakier and oakier wines. Uh, you know, Valdegay doesn't do that well. Valdegay makes sort of these, these delicate wines that are, uh, you know, way more ethereal as I notice a typo on my tech sheet where it says Valdegay instead of Valdegay. Hopefully that's the only place where that's written. Uh, anyways, so it's, you know, Valdegay ended up getting ripped up in, you know, in order to replant with these grape varieties that are, you know, far, uh, I don't know, just different. You know, I'm not going to say that Cabernet Sauvignon is better or worse than Valdegay, but it's definitely different. And Valdegay absolutely deserves to exist in California. And, uh, you know, I particularly love the style because it does make such drinkable wines, um, wines that transmit terroir in this really beautiful way. Uh, they have what Mark was talking about earlier, which is that sort of spiciness you get out of Syrah, um, kind of a peppery note, a floral quality. Uh, it just has all the flavors that I, you know, particularly like in wine. So it's, for me, it's, it's sort of a personal vendetta to try and, uh, keep this great variety kicking. So, uh, and again, Mark, since you've tasted this wine so recently, I feel like you're in charge of the, all the tasting notes all today. The tasting so, notes. Again, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll leave the the more technical tasting notes to Eric, because I know he's got a, a lot of good good notes in there. But I think, uh, yeah, I think he nails it with with the idea of like sort of fresher strawberries, not those overripe strawberries, but um, but definitely, yeah, just uh, just very very fresh, delicious strawberries. It's definitely it definitely like comes off as very fruity on the nose up front, and then kind of like eases into this uh, sort of like minty herbal. Uh, character and finishes off with that stony minerality um, so really well balanced it's always got this like juicy watermelon feel on the palate which I really love um, and again kind of that stoniness on the back end um, but uh, um, yeah uh, as as with all the wines today um, and frankly I think a lot of the times in our portfolio especially with sitting around 11 and a half to to 12 and a half percent they they tend to find a really good balance between uh, you know fresh fruit and sort of a savory side 
Um, I mean, one of the things I really love about this rosé, and you've noted it on your note, there's, uh, I mean, this will go a couple days, um, which is not something you can say about a lot of rosés. <laughs> um, I mean, they might last, but they're not going to be very interesting on day two. But I think, uh, again, despite only being 11.5%, this, this definitely has uh, not a fuller feel, but it's definitely got some structure to it. Yeah, definitely. Like even the, like, you know, touch of tannin, um, um, you know, good, good acid on it. Um, and I, of course I had it open for two days pouring and even tasted it on the third day and it was still really juicy and fun. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, it just goes to show great winemaking and also, um, uh, kind of a high quality style. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I feel like that's most of the things that we have to say for today. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to thank everybody for their, their patience for this episode coming out, uh, you know, a week late. Uh, you know, we really tried to get cool guests on our show. It obviously doesn't always work out, but you <laughs> so know, I was, I was the default, the uncool guest. Yes. Mark is the exceptionally uncool guest. Uh, but you know, we like having them here anyways. Uh, good excuse for you to hear somebody else's voice instead and somebody else's descriptions of the wines. Maybe mine don't always ring true for you. We all have different palates. We all grew up drinking different things, uh, eating different things, smelling different things. So it's nice to have somebody else's perspective, uh, regardless. So, um, if anybody has any questions about any of today's wines, you can send us an email. My email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. If you'd rather, you can talk to Mark, actually, since since he's here today and also knows all the things about these wines. His email address is mark, M-A-R-K, at juiceimports.com. Uh, so definitely, you know, harass him. Actually, don't even email me. Just go, go straight to Mark. You'll get way better answers that way. Um, you can also reach us on Instagram. It's just at Juice Imports. Uh, you know, check out the website and all those things. We really appreciate, uh, you know, all the feedback. We love hearing from you. And uh, hopefully you'll make it up to one of our tastings soon. We're doing a ton. Um, we're trying to organize a, a Laurent Cazotte um spirits tasting for two weeks from now uh, on Father's Day. So hopefully that comes through. Keep an eye on our Instagram for that. We'd love to have you there for it. So we'd love to share, uh, you know, those exceptionally soulful spirits. Um, and then hopefully early next month, we'll have uh, another uh, another wine tasting in the books as well, too. So stay tuned for all of that. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Chat soon.